0: Hi, I'm Neil Shah, and welcome to Life Changing Conversations, the show which explores the key moments in incredible people's lives. That moment that literally changed the course of their life where ordinary people went on to do extraordinary things. And this week I am so happy and honoured to have someone that I've admired for a while that's been doing some incredible work. I'm going to be speaking with Harvard educated psychologist, Dr. Melanie Joy. She's got a list of accolades and awards to her name. Too many to mention in my intro. But to give you a flavour, she's only the eighth recipient on the planet of the Institute of Jainology's Ahimsa Award, which was previously awarded to Nelson Mandela and the Dalai Lama. So she's in an amazing peer group. Her TEDx talk on carnism is in the top 1% of the most viewed TEDx talks of all time. And she's the author of the award-winning book, Why We Love Dogs, Eat Pigs and Wear Cows. She's also the founder and president of Beyond Carnism, and I'm delighted that she's able to join me by by VC from Berlin today to give us an insight into her work, which will change the very nature of the world we live in today. She's very much an inspirational thought leader. Melanie, welcome to the show. I want to talk to you about your charity, Beyond Carnism, but I think before we get into anything, help us to understand what Carnism is.
1: Well, thank you, and thank you so much for having me. Carnism is the invisible belief system that conditions us to eat certain animals. It's essentially the opposite of veganism. So you know, we, we tend to assume that only vegans and vegetarians follow a belief system when it comes to eating animals. But if you think about it, most of us learn to eat pigs but not dogs, for example, simply because we do follow a belief system when it comes to eating animals. Um, when eating animals is not a necessity, which is true for many people in the world today, then it's a choice. And choices always stem from beliefs. But mm-hmm. most people are not aware of carnism. We don't recognize carnism because it's invisible. It hadn't been named until recently. And so we just eat animals because it's the way things are. Um, and most of us have never really paused to reflect on the fact that we even have a choice when it comes to a- eating animals. And Carnism is a particular kind of belief system that has a tremendous impact, a significant negative impact on animals, of course, globally, on the environment, but also on ourselves. Physically, as well as psychologically. Um, and when we recognize carnism's impact and the way that it's structured, so uh, it's structured to get us, you know, people who are rational and compassionate people, to act against our deeper values and to act against our own interests, when we recognize that, then we can step outside of this system and make our food choices more freely. But we really need to be aware of carnism first. Without awareness, there's no free choice.
0: No absolutely and I really want to explore the psychology behind this because we always say we love animals yet we're perfectly okay to eat them and there's a paradox there there's an incongruence that many of us have lived with our whole life without questioning it. Where does that psychology come from where there is that disconnect?
1: Yeah, I mean, disconnect is exactly the word for it. Um, most of us live with this internal disconnect. We care about animals. Most people do. I mean, some people don't, but the vast majority of people do. We know that we're hardwired to feel empathy hmm. for other sentient beings. So empathy is our natural state. If you ever look at children with animals, you know they naturally are drawn to animals. They want to pet them. They want to connect with them. Many of us have had beloved you know, pets or companion animals who are our family members. And at the same time, we're putting the bodies of dead animals into our mouths from the moment we're weaned. And without even thinking about this profound contradiction between our beliefs and our behaviors, our beliefs on one hand, you know, that that animals are sentient beings and are caring for animals, and then our behaviors, which which are supporting an industry that is arguably the most violent industry that's ever existed on the planet. And so this disconnect Between our values and our behaviors, you know, or I would say, our authentic selves and Mm -hmm. the way we've been conditioned to be, comes from having been born into this invisible ideology or belief system of carnism. When you're born into this system, it's it's a dominant system. That means it's it's embraced and maintained by all of the major social institutions. You know, you think about medicine, nutrition, education, psychology, we're constantly being told that eating animals is the right thing to do. It's just the way things are. It's normal, natural, and necessary. And when we're born into a system that's so deeply institutionalized in this way, we inevitably internalize it. We learn to look at the world through the lens of carnism and we disconnect because, As people who have compassion and justice as some of our core moral values, who care about animals, most of us would never willingly participate in extensive and intensive violence against them. Most of us would find this deeply offensive. So systems such as carnism, these violent systems, um, need to use psychological defense mechanisms that essentially distort our perceptions so that they numb our feelings, they disconnect us from our natural empathy, and then we act against our values without realizing what we're doing.
0: But it's not universal. Carnism, as you describe it, for me is quite selective because, the, the Yuling Dog Festival, for example, or Cecil the Lion, when, when we obviously had the, the news that, that he'd been uh, killed by the hunter. The outroar that resulted off the back of those kind of incidents compared to, you, you know, the daily occurrences of maybe people going home and eating a, a steak dinner. And where does that disconnect come from? How can we differentiate and segregate between the animals we care about?
1: Well, humans have a remarkable ability to compartmentalize. We do this with our other human groups. You know, We protect our babies at home and bomb, bomb other babies overseas. So it's not just animals that we compartmentalize around in this way. Um, that said, carnism is, in fact, a global phenomenon. What changes is simply the type of animal that is consumed. Um, The type of animal consumed changes from culture to culture, absolutely, but people's relationships with eating animals does not change. The same psychological mechanisms are in place. Mm -hmm. Um, People tend, around the world, people tend to be disgusted by all of the species they have not been conditioned to think of as edible. So, for example, Americans, many Americans anyway, are disgusted by the idea of eating horses, and in some places like France, people are not disgusted by eating horses. Carnism conditions us mm-hmm. to distort our perceptions and block our empathy when it comes to those select species we've learned to think of as edible. And this is true in cultures around the world. I've talked about carnism, and given my carnism presentation, um, I've been in 40 countries now around the world talking about this phenomenon, and it exists everywhere.
0: I've been reading a really fascinating book called Sapiens, um, which kind of exploring the, the, the history of humanity. And, you know, I, I thought that they were selected for a particular cultural reason, but it was just they were better equipped to cope with tropical conditions and work hard. So, you know, people from the African continent were selected because actually they made pretty good slaves. Um, is there an element of certain animals are selected for food products because they are better equipped or they're, they're better utilized as food sources?
1: I mean, certainly that plays a role. I mean, animals who are geographically available, um, who are easy to, to raise, I and mean, we don't eat carnivores for a variety of reasons. One is because it's, it's a lot more cost-effective to, um, breed and slaughter herbivores who can't fight back the way that carnivores can. Um, So certainly there are various reasons why certain animals have been selected, but what carnism does is it conditions us to believe that the animals who have been selected or or classified as edible are meant to be eaten. Mm
0: -hmm. Carnism
1: teaches us to believe in what I call, one of the defenses of carnism, I call the three ends of justification, eating animals is normal, natural, and necessary these are myths. They're myths that are presented as facts hmm. and they're myths that have been used to justify violent practices throughout human history.
0: And that was interesting a couple of weeks ago we had Dr. Dr. Michael Gregor on the show and he was talking about like a lot of the pseudoscience that exists to back up why from a health perspective we need to eat uh, animal products. And it's something that we found quite interesting that they, they, you know, these are the myths that tend to, to become the facts that we hang our hats on. And that's the question that, that you know comes to mind for me is why are we not asking ourselves these questions? And why do we automatically go into defensive mode when people question our right to eat meat? Even though you know it's, it's, it's an uncomfortable truth, but often we go into that kind of very defensive space.
1: Absolutely. Carnism keeps itself alive by, it it depends on us acting in accordance with what it wants us to be doing, which is not what most of us would choose to be doing if we were thinking rationally and freely and we were feeling our natural empathy. I mean, one way to think about carnism is almost like an entity that has, um, you know, hijacked our minds and we're looking at the world through the lens of carnism and it is designed to keep itself alive. And the way that it keeps itself alive is to keep us defending it and reacting. And you can see examples of this everywhere. Um, Reacting against any challenges to this idea that eating animals is the right thing to do. Um, I talk about, in my work, I talk about two types of carnistic defenses. One of them I call primary defenses. And these are defenses that are organized around the myth um, that eating animals is the right thing to do. So I gave you an example of the three ends of justification. Um, Another, uh, The other type of carnistic defense is what I call secondary defenses. These are defenses that teach us to believe that not eating animals is the wrong thing to do. So in other words, or another way to think about this is that primary defenses cause us to validate carnism. And secondary defenses cause us to invalidate veganism which is the counter system that mm. challenges carnism and so many people well-intentioned people uh, will become very defensive simply when they meet a vegan suddenly they'll have all these stereotypes in their minds they will try to discredit the vegan's message, um, or or otherwise silence the vegan without realizing what they're doing. And and all oppressive systems are structured in a similar way. They maintain themselves by getting people to resist taking in the very message that would actually free them from the system. It's the very same mentality, the very same psychology, that enables us to slaughter animals the way that we do is the mentality that enables us to exploit and oppress various human groups as well. And I think it's very important for us to look at the way these systems are similarly structured and the mindset that we all inherit when we are born into these systems that causes us to defend oppression Mm -hmm. when really oppression is completely antithetical to what most of us genuinely believe and want in the world.
0: So, am I correct in assuming that what you're suggesting is that, that people are being brainwashed by the system to believe a certain set of ideals? Would, would that be um, kind of a correct way of uh, interpreting this? That that you...
1: Well, brainwashing to me suggests a bit more of an active element. Um, okay. These systems are self-perpetuating. Um, you know, there are uh, stakeholders in these systems—animal um, agribusiness, you know, multi-billion-dollar industries—who obviously are invested in maintaining carnism. Um, However, the systems once in place become self-perpetuating. We all end up participating in them without realizing what we're doing. So I wouldn't call it brainwashing as much as I would call it conditioning. Uh, Operating, many of us go through our lives in the world in certain ways on autopilot yeah. without, and, and eating animals is a perfect example. You know, when I was growing up, nobody ever asked me if I believed in eating animals or if I wanted to eat animals or if I, you know, how I felt about eating animals. No one ever asked me to reflect on, you know, one of the these, one of the most profound experiences in some ways of, of my life. Um, it was eating animals was just the way things are. Um, so it's just that eating animals has become so normalized um, that it's very difficult for many people to even think outside of that box.
0: I really would like to take some time to explore that because you were very much a result of the cultural conditioning before you had that moment where you you, you kind of uh, changed the course of your life. What led you to that? What was the, the, the kind of the key pivotal experience that you had or the moment that you had where you made that lifestyle shift and why?
1: You know, there were several experiences. Um, the, the most, well, probably the most known one was when I was 23 years old. Um, I ate a hamburger that was contaminated with Campylobacter. I've spoken about this and, and written about this. Um, and I wound up hospitalized, um, extremely ill on IV antibiotics. And I stopped eating meat after that. Um, I I had been interested in, you know, potential vegetarianism. I had heard, you know, little bits here and there about what happens to the animals, but nothing really sunk in before that experience. Um, And I just stopped eating meat because I, and eggs at the time, um, dairy came later, um, because I was disgusted, physically disgusted by it. But then as I was learning information about my diet, vegetarianism, then all of a sudden i learned about the reality of animal agriculture i learned about the impact of animal agriculture on the animals on the planet um, and i was shocked and horrified um, and i just didn't want to be a part of that and i think the fact that i wasn't eating meat anymore made me more receptive to this information um, i should say that the first animals that i stopped eating were actually sea animals and i stopped at four years old um, and that was actually a very pivotal experience in my life, which I didn't realize until I was much older when I could put the pieces together. Um, my father was a fisherman by, his profession was, uh, not a fisherman, but he was a, a musician by profession, but he was always like a, a very active fisherman. Mm. And my favorite place in the world to be was on his boat when I was a baby. And I had this little um, fishing pole, like, you know, a little kid's fishing pole. Mm. I never caught any fish, but I would have my pole. I was always in the side of the boat next to my dad's, and my mom's kind of like dragging along the water. And one day I was four years old, um, I did catch a fish. It was a black fish. I actually remember this experience very clearly. Um, and my parents were so excited and they were cheering and clapping and my father came running over and he reeled the fish in for me, um, you know, his hands over mine. And they pulled the fish, he pulled the fish onto the boat. And I remember, looking at that fish flopping back and forth on the, on the floor of the boat, glistening in the sun, her gills or his gills, you know, just struggling for air. And my parents were so happy and I could not share in their happiness. And I didn't understand what was wrong with me that I couldn't be happy, but I wasn't happy. I was feeling sad instead and actually somewhat guilty, which I didn't realize until later that mm-hmm. that was the feeling I had. And my young mind, I think, was too, it wasn't developed enough to actually make the connection that I was feeling disturbed by the fact that I had just killed someone. Um, And so instead, it manifested in my body. And fish had been my favorite food up until that day. And from that moment on, I would get sick, actually throw up if I had to eat fish. And then even the smell of it sickened me. And I, I never ate any sea life again from then on. And looking back, I can see how that happened, even today, which is, it's not the best thing, because I can't, I mean, seaweed is is vegan, it's -hmm. really not a problem, but I still have this visceral reaction to the smell of it.
0: Wow, that's, that's intense, you know, to have that experience at four years of age. But ultimately, you know, I'm starting to get a sense in my head of the mindset shifts that we go through to desensitize us to consuming animal products. What I want to understand is the reverse of that. From your perspective, what are the stages of the mindset shift that we need to go through to re-engage with kind of our participation in whatever kind of lifestyle kind of approaches we wish to adopt?
1: It's such a great question. Um, I, I think really being um, being committed to living an authentic life and and to to living a life that feels uh, for me it's, it's very important to feel that I'm I'm living my truth. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think on the deepest level we all have a pretty similar truth. Um, you know most of us do share the same core moral values of of compassion and justice. You know most of us want to not just feel good about our not just feel good, but to feel good about ourselves. Um, you know, to feel like good about who we are. And so, as I, you know, became increasingly maybe active in in living a more authentic life, it helped me to become increasingly connected with my 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 authentic thoughts and feelings, rather than what I had been taught to think and feel, mm-hmm. and to really try to bring that authenticity into the world you know, to really be committed to trying to live a life of integrity. Um, integrity, you know, I'm, I'm using the definition of integrity as the, the integration of values and practices. And I'm not saying this in a perfectionistic way mm. at all. Um, I'm simply saying that, you know, if you think about integrity on a spectrum, most things, maybe everything in some ways falls on the spectrum. Sure. Um, It's not a question of, you know, either you're a person of integrity or you're not, but you know How much integrity are you bringing into your life each day? You know, how authentically are you living your values each day? How how present are you? How much are you showing up to your life each day? And when you really commit to being authentic and you really commit to being present, you know Being to the best of your ability honest um, Honestly here and now, Mm -hmm. you know, honestly showing up into this moment um, honestly, attending to the person who's right in front of you and not thinking about your to-do list and you know worrying about what happened yesterday. The more you commit to doing that, the more you reconnect with, with who you really are and what really matters to you. And for most of us, who we really are and what really matters to us, like is is being a proactive um, uh, human being in the world. You know, being a part of a better world. And I'm not saying that everybody has to go out and become an activist to do that. But in my experience, um, I've worked with thousands and thousands of people over the years. I was a teacher for for many years. I was a professor for a long time, um, 17 years or something. Um, And I've met so many students, I've done so many trainings, so many talks, and over and over and over again, I see that people are just so hungry for meaning and so hungry to be able to truly be themselves and be okay with that. And when we really truly are ourselves, it really is often win-win, where we do end up making more positive contributions to our relationships and our world.
0: And tell us about your approach as a campaigner. How is it that you're showing up and campaigning for change in, in your unique way that's different to how other people may approach things?
1: Um, the work that we do at Beyond Carnism is educational, it's awareness raising. Um, I really believe that it is impossible to have a truly objective conversation about eating animals, as long as we're having that conversation from within the very system that conditions us to believe that eating animals is the right thing to do. So. You know, our approach is very much focused on awareness raising, helping people become aware of carnism and the defenses of carnism so that they can be less controlled by this carnistic mentality. Um, studies have shown that when people become aware of their defenses or their cognitive biases, they have a lot. Um, these biases or defenses have a lot less control over them. Mm. And and I have seen again and again and again that that people who become aware, not just of the atrocities of animal agriculture, people can see that and not change. Um, Mm. But when people become aware of carnism and the way it's structured, it creates some space between them and that defensive mentality, so that they can start to make changes that they they feel good about. we also really encourage people to to not think of veganism as, as all or nothing, to really approach veganism. And I'm not saying, you know, I'm not saying that there's no such thing as, as an actual vegan, there obviously are, but but to approach veganism and becoming vegan as a process. And I always encourage people to try to be as vegan as possible. Um, you know, so for many people transition gradually. And um, when we ask people to just go vegan immediately, many people feel like that's just too much for them. But if if somebody really tries to be as vegan as possible, they have the opportunity at every meal to really think about the least harm they can do, at least in terms of eating animals or not eating animals. Mm. Um, And many people find that quite manageable. In fact, if the world, if everybody in the world were as vegan as possible, the world would be vegan fairly quickly. And we also encourage people to think of um, sort of outside of this box that frames the situation as either you're vegan and you're part of the solution or you're not vegan and you're part of the problem. Um, The vegan movement is a social justice movement and um, social justice movements don't succeed just because they have you know, a a core group of activists. They succeed because they've attracted enough of the mainstream to tip the scales of power. There are so many ways that people can become what I call vegan allies. They're allies to the vegan movement. Some of the people who have done the most good for animals um, are people who are journalists who interview me and raise awareness of carnism and veganism among millions of readers, Mm -hmm. or philanthropists who donate to our organization so that we can do the vegan outreach we do, but they're not vegan themselves. So I think it's really important for us to start talking more about vegan allies, a vegan ally being a person who's not fully vegan themselves, but who nevertheless believes in the values and ideals of veganism. They can you know, support the vegans in their lives. They can be that person at the table when the vegan's being teased that does not go along with that and stands up with the vegan or for the vegan.
0: I, I find your comments fascinating. I, I grew up in a family that are from a Jain tradition, but we never had religion or Uh, kind of that philosophy when we were growing up, it was just kind of our background. It's only later in life that I started to explore that and coming across the the principles of Ahimsa and the science of nonviolence and that kind of thing, I found it really interesting. I had more respect and appreciation for it later in life. But I was very much one of those uh, people in my 20s and uh, up until recently where I would be fighting for change. I am fighting for peace where I started to realize that that in itself was such a paradox. You cannot fight for peace, you cannot fight for change because you're approaching it with the same negative energy that created the problem in the first place. You can only love for peace. And in the same way that I found, regardless of the cause that people are passionate about, even if, you know, if you're a vegan and you're fighting for veganism, actually you're going out with the anger and the the intensity that is the same force that, as you describe it, the carnist movement would, or the carnism would be using. And, and actually being able to reach people in a way where you, where, where you can get them to relate to your perspective and reaching out to them with compassion, for me, is the only way that we can actually bring about true change. But the challenge is that when you are that passionate about something and when you care that much, you can find yourself getting personally triggered or even lose your temper. You know, as much as I know that you've got a particular approach, do you ever get triggered? Do you ever lose your temper? No,
1: oh, <laughs> you should ask my husband. <laughs> um, the spouse always knows. <laughs> um, I mean, it's it's Eckhart Tolle. I don't know if you know Eckhart. Tolle. Of course. Now, says that that which you, I think he says that which you fight, you strengthen. Yes. Um, pers- you resist, persist. I think it's a saying, or you know, so so there's truth in this. I mean, there's truth not just from an energetic perspective, but from a psychological perspective too. Um, the dynamics, like just from a relational perspective, the dynamics of aggression, these aggressive power over dynamics, as it were, um, tend to trigger a similar response and defensiveness in other people. That's absolutely, that's absolutely true. And so our approach and my approach is to really try to, try to use, try to water the right seats um you know i think it was tic who said that we all have within us the seeds of greed hatred and desire and we also have within us the seeds of love compassion and empathy yeah. and our job is just to water the right seeds so this is very much our approach for the reasons that you described for the reasons that Eckhart Tolle and Buddhists talk about and 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 for psychological reasons um, mm-hmm. you know and it's simply it's more in keeping in alignment with the values that we're trying to create in the world and at the same time it's important to acknowledge that that there are people who are angry and there are vegans who are angry about what's happening to the animals there are people of color who are angry about you know what's happening in in race society there are women who are angry that's happening about what's happening as a result of patriarchy and this anger is valid anger is a normal legitimate response to injustice Mm. and um it's important to honor that and it's important to acknowledge that um you know historically this one one of the ways that oppressive systems have maintained themselves is by trying to pathologize or um quell the anger of marginalized groups or oppressed groups that said, the anger is understandable, and it's often it still is not productive. Um, so we can do both. We can recognize it as valid and try to work around it and work with it.
0: No, of course. And I think that nicely brings us on to the next thing I really wanted to talk to you about is is the relationships and how obviously that anger can have an impact on relationships. And I know that you do work running workshops and training so, so people that have adopted a vegan lifestyle can talk effectively to loved ones, co-workers, spread the message, get more of a positive result. I personally have found that some of my real relationships were impacted when I decided to to adopt a plant-based lifestyle. I remember an experience of my brother running a barbecue and uh, deciding not to invite me because he thought I might make other people feel uncomfortable. Um, I found that also, Dating when you're you a vegan is not that easy because, you know, automatically that that creates a point of conversation which potentially can make people feel uncomfortable on both sides of the equation. So I'm really interested in that to find out more about the work that you do in, in terms of helping people to navigate that minefield.
1: Yeah, I mean, this was why I wrote my new book, Beyond Beliefs, um, you know, about relationships and communication. Um, it my, The other hat that I've worn over the years was as a relationship um, coach, relationship specialist, and I wanted to bring these kind of two parts of my life together, mm. um, working in veganism and, and also working in relationships. And a lot of what I talk about in Beyond Beliefs is applicable beyond vegan, non-vegan differences. Um sure. basic principles of healthy relationships and effective communication. Um, and... It is true um, that these kinds of differences, ideological differences, can be challenging in relationships. Any kind Mm -hmm. of ideological differences can be challenging in relationships. Um, What I talk about in my book is how the differences um, ideological or not, are are often not the problem. It's how we relate to differences that are the problem. Okay. Um, it's when we make value judgments around differences that are the problem. And when we don't take the time to relate in a healthy way to the other person, to really genuinely be committed to understanding their world, to knowing what the world looks like for their eyes, and to to giving them our basic respect, even if we disagree, um, or. Rather than disagree, rather than say disagree, even if, if their choices are not our choices, mm. it's complicated with vegans and non-vegans for a number of reasons. And one of the reasons is because there's a power differential. The playing field is simply not level. Um, when you have a relationship between individuals, who one of whom is a member of a dominant social group, the group that has the majority of power in society, whose views are seen as normal, natural, appropriate, legitimate, necessary, whose ideals are backed up by the rest of the world, who are automatically defensive against the beliefs of the other person, its it creates a very difficult, potentially very difficult situation. So mm-hmm. vegans in relationships often feel invisible. They feel that they keep, because of this defensiveness that we all inherit through carnism. You know, vegans can find that when they're in a relationship with a non vegan, that that non vegan is um, acting defensively towards them, not because of who they are, but simply because they've been conditioned to be defensive against what the vegan represents.
0: So, if it's okay with you, I'd, I'd like to have a bit of fun and just explore some scenarios where this might show up and just get your expertise, your take on it. And if you're okay, we we'll do a bit of fun role playing. And I'd like to play the role of someone that is a little bit on the fence, likes to think that they are ethical. They're not necessarily attacking your views. Um, And we're out to dinner and we're kind of just having a conversation and you know, I genuinely do care about animals and this is something that's really important to me. And, you know, I only ever buy my, my meat free range and organic and, uh, you know, like I, I, I like to think that, you know, that animals have had a good life up until the point they died, um, you know, but I need protein. I, I train a lot and I exercise and, you know, I need protein in my life and, you know, it's really important. But, you know, I do care and I'm doing the best that I can.
1: I am always happy to hear people say that they care about animals. I'm always heartened by that statement because the animals in this world have a really hard time of it. The suffering is unbelievable and the animals need all the caring they can get. And it sounds like, you know, you really genuinely want to make choices that are in the best interest of the animals and don't cause harm. I mean, it's right. You're saying that you've you've reduced your consumption of animals and you've changed the kind of of animal products you eat, not for health reasons per se, but actually because you want to cause less harm to the animals.
0: Yeah. also uh, from my understanding, you know, when it's organic and free range, that's better for me, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I totally understand that. And I I remember when organic meat was first introduced to the market and I actually thought like, hey, you know, maybe this, my family eats meat i was vegan at the time my family eats me and i thought maybe this is like an alternative for them um and then when i started researching it i learned that it was a pr move it was you know carnistic industries profits being threatened because more and more people were waking up to the truth about what happens to the animals like you and saying no that they didn't want to be a part of this so they were voting with their dollar or voting with their pound um and obviously this industry didn't want to just roll over Um, And so they created this idea that it's possible to, like, have happy-to-be-eaten animals. Um, And what I have found um, and and know to be true is that that's actually a myth. Um, And I might actually give them more information if they want about that, want more information about that, and share my own experience of, you know, how I eat and what, you know, when I'm working out, lifting weights, you know, how plant protein has worked for me, which Mm -hmm. is really well. And I think that, that was something
0: personally I, I struggle with. I decided to, uh, to go vegan halfway through training for an Ironman. And I remember my coach and most of my friends and people in my triathlon club all literally like rolling the eyes in the back of the head. It's like you, you can't make that decision halfway through training for one of the toughest one-day endurance sports events. Wait until after the race and then if you want to do it, you can give it a go. And I was at that point, I, I'm very much an overnight uh, vegan. I never I've never been vegetarian in my life. Unless uh, literally made a decision, and when I make a decision, I'm kind of stuck with it. The challenges I faced, and people that were genuinely concerned about my well-being, they were worried about me. Um, and I felt like I knew that I was doing the right thing. There was something that compelled me to move forward with this. But the resistance I faced, and the pe- there were some people that thought I was actually being stupid, and I was going to end up like doing myself some damage. And I find that, that that was really troubling for me, because I started questioning myself during that period.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's tricky because the mainstream does still believe like the dominant culture does still believe that somehow you need to eat animals, muscles in order to develop muscles yourself, even Mm. though the literature does not support that anymore. Um. and you know, more and more people, more and more medical practitioners, nutritionists are, you know, stepping out of the carnistic box and, and starting to look at research more objectively. I mean, if you think about it, Because carnism is institutionalized, when we study nutrition, we're actually studying carnistic nutrition. So it's, you know, there is this bias built right into the institution.
0: Given the extent and how prevalent um, and entrenched carnism is, how do you see things changing? Is it possible to change things? Uh, You you know, if we think about other entrenched belief systems like slavery, male dominance, gay rights that are no longer acceptable... You know, what steps would we need to take to get to the point where we can change this entrenched system? Is it even possible?
1: I mean, it's already happening. Um, you know, it's, it's, I have not been anywhere yet in the world, in the 40 countries that I've been to, where I haven't seen ex, literally exponential growth of veganism. Mm. Um, you know, Some countries are more advanced when it comes to the, the vegan movement than other countries, but everywhere, and I've had this very privileged position of being able to meet with people in positions of, ve- uh, of leadership in the vegan movement, and, and to hear it from them, what's going on in your country, and, and without fail, every single one of them has said in the past five years, things have just started to, to dramatically shift. You've got more and more vegan restaurants, um, you know, vegan food options, just vegan awareness, even health awareness. And that's coming actually a little bit more slowly, um, but it is changing all around the world. So it's really interesting, and it's, it's, it's fascinating to see what's happening right now. And I think if we look at the trajectory of change, um, that, uh, that we're seeing now, um, it, it's clear to me that veganism will replace carnism one day as the dominant belief system. It's just a question of, of when in my mind, not whether.
0: Amazing. And uh, yeah, I, I remember that we had Ken and Eric from uh, Happy Cow on last week. And they they informed us that London is the first city on the planet that has now got more than 100 exclusively vegan restaurants listed on their guide. So that is a landmark achievement to have 100 exclusively vegan restaurants listed means that there is enough demand, enough people out there looking for these kind of options. Well, I think it's actually beyond that now that that was when the listing was done, but I think it's up to about 110 now. So this is fantastic. I
1: didn't know that.
0: Yeah, I didn't know that. Uh, I'd like to think I know quite a few of them personally because I've visited them. But, you know, this for me is, you know, like uh, kind of uh, a real kind of sense of where we're going with this and that that, that there is some kind of change of foot. Um, But, you know, there, there are a couple of things that I think are important to address as well that you know that some of the things that we've talked about today the distressing facts the the footage that we see online the figures around sort of you know how many animals are killed and suffer and these kind of things this is quite distressing, and I know, you, you know you, you've looked at this. Is it uh, secondary traumatic stress syndrome? Now, given my background in, in, in stress awareness and mental health, this is something I'm, I'm really interested about. Uh, you know, how our exposure to the suffering and, and death of animals and they, the kind of the, their plight, how that potentially can cause these kind of symptoms. Because uh, as I remember from watching Earthlings, for three or four days afterwards, I was very, very distressed tell us a little bit more about the, this syndrome and, and how it affects people and what we can do to prevent ourselves from having kind of the, the, the kind of this negative impact to our mental well-being as a result of exposing ourselves to the truth of carnism
1: Secondary traumatic stress—it's um, it, it, a normal reaction that people have, you know, when we have empathy and, mm. and and sensitivities. It's it's normal to to have a traumatic response to witnessing an atrocity. So um, not everybody has this response, but many many people do. Um, essentially, it's many people know post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD. Secondary traumatic stress is exactly the same. Uh, symptom wise, it's just that it affects the witnesses to violence rather than the direct victims of violence. So you see this in first responders, you know, like paramedics and police okay, officers. Yeah. Sure. Um, and you also see this in, in, in activists and advocates for for movements who are witnessing atrocities. And so mm. not surprisingly, there is a high high rate of secondary traumatic stress among vegans um, who not only have very often anyway have witnessed this this horrific graphic imagery of what's happening to the animals but who also have to live in the midst of that atrocity knowing that it's continuing minute to minute and witnessing the uh the, the byproducts of it everywhere you know these dead animal body parts are everywhere once you step outside of Karnazim, the world looks very different True. you don't see food trucks anymore you see truck trucks full of, of body parts, dismembered beings. Um, and so, you know, and on top of that, vegans' experience is is very often minimized or dismissed. Vegans can even be, you know, ridiculed for their beliefs. And so it takes a tremendous amount of resilience to, to live in this dominant carnistic culture that for many vegans, daily offends their deepest sensibilities. Mm. Um, and where they really have to, to you know, to, they're really often not witnessed and invisible um you know vegans are are cleaning up a lot of the mess that's left behind and getting no recognition for this whatsoever and often even being ridiculed for it so so that takes a toll that said, becoming vegan is incredibly empowering, and, and many vegans feel that it's like the most empowering choice that they can make in their lives. Um, I mean, it's not all secondary traumatic stress. It's simply that vegans need to recognize that this reaction is normal, and to take steps to take care of themselves. And the most important way to do that is to attend to their needs, to really attend to basic needs. Sleep, you know, healthy eating, not vegan junk food, mm healthy eating, giving yourself permission to treat yourself with the same compassion that you're trying to cultivate in the rest of the world. And that is the number one thing, to the degree that we can meet our own needs, um, is the degree that we are more resilient, able to withstand and bounce back from stress.
0: I think as we start to wrap up, I'd really be interested in exploring what health benefits can we expect to achieve by adopting a, a, a vegan or plant based lifestyle, and you know, and also you know the climate benefits, the the more global benefits. Well, you know, what what are the wins? What are the benefits of of, of, of taking this path?
1: I mean most choices in life that are in healthy choices are win-win choices you know what's good for me is good for the planet what's good for me is good for my relationship and what's good for my relationship is good for me and you know veganism is is is, um no exception to this so when we eat a more plant-based whole foods diet you know we obviously michael Greger was on last week i'm sure you've heard all about it yeah absolutely tremendous Mm. health benefits i mean i'm you know, healthier today at 51 than I was when I was 25, when I was half my age. Um, and this is owed largely no question in my mind to, to my diet. Um, so there are tremendous health benefits. You know, the United Nations has said that animal agriculture is a leading cause of some of the most serious environmental problems facing the world today, have uh, encouraged people to shift toward a vegan diet. You know, and obviously the animals benefit, um, you know, the 70 i don't know how many billion it is this year something like 75 billion individuals who are you know who who don't have a single good day of their lives who literally live lives and deaths experience deaths of misery um you know so this really is win-win when we choose to do less harm through our dietary and lifestyle choices
0: and if we look to the future do you think that we can achieve a world where we end animal suffering in our lifetimes?
1: Yeah, I mean, as I, oh, in our lifetimes, I don't know. Um, I, that's a good question. We have, I'm the co-founder of ProVeg International here in Berlin. My husband's the C- CEO and um, ProVeg's mission is to reduce global animal co- consumption by 50% by 2040. Hmm. So it's the 50 by 40 campaign. Wow. So if we achieve that, then, Within our lifetime, it is possible um, that we can see an end to this system. I, but I, I don't know what's going to happen at that point.
0: Well, good luck to you. You know, I, I wish you well in your journey. It's been such a pleasure having you on today. So, your new book, Beyond Beliefs. Can you tell us about this? When is it out? Or how can people get hold of it? It's out, it's out now. Okay.
1: Um, it's available um, it, 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 on Amazon bookstores.
0: Fantastic. And uh, you know, just give us a couple of lines as to what people can expect by by ordering this book.
1: Yeah, so Beyond Beliefs is a guide to improving relationships and communication for vegans, vegetarians, and meat eaters. Um, And so it's written for all three audiences, and it also can be helpful with vegans relating to other vegans. And it really talks about the principles of establishing the principles of healthy relationships, um, tools for effective communication, and it's got a lot of practical tips in there for navigating these differences um, and for creating connection in relationships, even when there is an ideological difference, so being able to build resilient, connected relationships—not simply romantic relationships, but but all kinds of relationships, friendships, family relationships—you um, know, even even relationships with your colleagues.
0: And if people want to find out more about you and your work, where can they go?
1: Uh, they could go to carnism.org.
0: Okay, uh, so we'll put that link up on, on the feed uh, a little bit later. Thank you so much for taking time out your busy schedule to join us. Um, if you're in London, be sure to, to pop in to, to have a chat with us. So we'd love to have you on again at some point in the future. Um, and yeah, Mel- Dr Melanie Joy, thank you so much for being on Life Changing Conversations. As ever, if you've enjoyed the conversation, like, comment, share. Let us know what your thoughts are. If you've got any questions, please post them and join in the conversation. This has been brought to you in conjunction with The January. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today or any of the other podcasts, links, details of Melanie's books and videos, they can also be found on our Facebook page. I'm Neil Shah. See you next week for another life-changing conversation.